Welcome to the Neville on Fire podcast. Neville Goddard was a 20th century spiritual teacher who offered a profound message. Your creative imagination is the very source of reality. As we learn to use it properly, life becomes intelligible and rewarding. Join your host, Ed, to explore our most valuable asset, the human imagination. This is episode 25, The Way of the Poet. In this episode, I'll start out with a talk that I recorded taking a walk outside, and then I'll come back into the office to finish it off. Let us go back to the central assumption that subsumes all of our goals, all of our wishes, and that is that I am the creative source. The first question that always comes back around to me when I have to relocate myself, do you believe that you are the creative source? But who are we addressing? (coughs) Who is the you? It's a certain state. That's where we get caught up. A certain state will precipitate doubt, indecision, worry, and yet all of this slipped into our minds undetected and captured us. And so we took it to be ourselves. Then we're faced directly with the question, well, do you actually believe that you are the creative source? Enveloped in this negative state, it's very difficult to assert that you are. You cannot. You simply go around in circles. That's when the poet's vision, the poet's way of being enters in, which says uncompromisingly, I know who I am. Does anyone know what poetry is all about? I'm reading a biography of American poet Ezra Pound. He had, first of all, a great talent for editing others' work and preparing them actually to reach notoriety and even win Nobel Prizes. So he accomplished that for Hemingway, Yeats, T.S. Eliot, and James Joyce. His artistic eye, his editing talent, consisted in doing away with flowery Victorian superfluous words and getting right to the heart of the matter, and in that way improve the force, the directness. Also, he had um, an unusual interest. He would advocate for unknown authors. He would try to get them grants, positions, try to get them published. He also edited many periodicals, many papers, many reviews, most of the time without salary, again, in an effort to promote art. Now, his own expertise in poetry was fueled by an early desire. He had determined to know more about poetry than any man alive by the time he was 30 years old. He learned several languages, secured an early professorship, but he soon gave that up and moved to Europe. Apart from his own literary production, and editing and promoting others. When a lot of his contemporaries were killed senselessly, he decided to look into the political and economic roots of war and continued from that point on to protest against the interests who perpetuate war in our world. So there you have a general sketch of someone who, in the literary world, the world of poetry, was highly competent, learned, Uh, selfless in his promotion of others and successful in doing so, as well concerned with practical worldly matters. Now, in trying to understand his own work, I've read uh, descriptions, at least, of his major work, which is called the Cantos Songs. It was a lifelong work, 
consisting of many volumes, many chapters, a monumental accomplishment. The question then becomes, how do you understand the work of someone who was evidently so well-rounded, intelligent, well-prepared, and so observant? Well, the work itself was a huge amalgam of all kinds of different expression. Because of its length and because of the various subjects and approaches that it takes, um, it's varied and multifaceted. It's not poetry in the traditional or conventional sense of the word. It's not a depiction of something, but it is simply an expression that is complete unto itself. But the central point, if I understand it correctly, the work affects you directly the way it stands. It's not about something. It's simply the way it hits your psyche when you encounter it. And that is the instructive thing. That's the engagement with the poem. All right, so so what is my purpose in this foray into the world of poetry and Ezra Pound in the context of a podcast on Neville Goddard? It's simply to try to understand what an intelligent, articulate, competent person will say with respect to the proper conduct of life. So I'll give a, a parallel example also from the world of art, this time visual art paintings in this uh, book of artistic criticism. This particular painting was not a depiction of something. The periphery of the frame itself did not form a border of the subject. It was simply a portal looking onto something that was much bigger. Apparently in the world of abstract modern art, that was a first. The parallel is that it's not a painting of something, it's simply the experience of the painting directly as it makes an impact upon the brain. That's the parallel that I'm drawing with the poetry of Ezra Pound. So let's get back to the question, what is the point of this mode of expression? The artist's answer is that they don't want to see people mesmerized by popular culture and by all the various narratives that are given to us by institutions, as we've been discussing over several episodes. They want people to be fully human and vitally alive and experiencing the fullness of life from moment to moment. It's the sort of experience or interaction with art where everything in the human psyche is going to be touched on, whether it's positive or negative, wanted or unwanted, beautiful or ugly. Now, does that mean they don't have a principled position with with respect to how society should be constituted? Does this mean that the whole thing is nonsensical? Is this way of life, this artistic expression, a continual series of nonsense? There is an ethos or uh, an ethical position that is discernible in this man's work. I don't think Pound himself was ever confused or at a loss to know what he was doing. He was clear from the very beginning. That's the distinct impression I get, and that seems to be the judgment of his biographer also. So is it possible that Neville's worldview is this very same approach to life, putting aside all other processes and living by intent and imagination? All right, so at this point, let me try to recap and make sense out of the trajectory of my little talk today. I started out with talking about a wrong state, falling into a negative state where you're actually experiencing doubt 
and worry and uncertainty. And this whole thing was brought about in a very kind of a surreptitious or sneaky way by the subconscious. It just enveloped you and it recaptured your, your understanding, your very identity um, in a moment when you were left unguarded. So this is what happens even after so much study, so much in, intention in remaining conscious and in uh, being the captains of our souls. We're given, it seems, ever more diffi difficult tests and more evidence from the subconscious that there's something yet again to be understood, to be penetrated and overcome. And then I proposed the way of the poet as an answer to this conundrum. Now, when I say the poet, I mean, in particular, Ezra Pound. Now, the poet's answer to this I gave by first explaining Ezra Pound's background, his competence, his expertise. And then I explained, without going into the depths of interpretation of his work, at least the aspect of his work that showed an authentic and honest presentation. Now, does that give us an answer on how to be in the world? And did, did he actually live that answer? Did he express it in his being? I think the answer is yes. If you read this biography, you'll see, of course, that Ezra Pound's life was uh, ensconced in a huge controversy. And if you read the Wikipedia uh, bio on him, you won't get a balanced view. It will be prejudiced and... Um, really quite unfair. The biography that I'm referring to does give a balanced picture, even though the author is was one of his students and is predisposed to give him a, a good review. Nevertheless, he presents the evidence from all sides. The reason that I find Ezra Pound so particularly inspiring is that he went through an extraordinary amount of difficulty, persecution, physical torture and incarceration. And he also suffered incredible injustice, especially in view of the fact that he never harmed anyone and actually protected and assisted people all through his life and advocated only for the most noble sorts of goals with respect to his homeland, its constitution, and his desire to keep his country out of the Second World War, which he saw as so unnecessary. And yet he bore up under all of these circumstances and displayed an extraordinary strength of character. Well, one of the many bitter ironies in his life story is that he was accused, indicted for treason, and never tried, and yet sentenced to an insane asylum in St. Elizabeth's uh, Institution in Washington, D.C., uh, very reminiscent of the Soviet practice of relegating to uh, a mental institution political dissidents. The irony that I was referring to is that he was accused by the president's assistant, Alger Hiss, who was the real traitor in the picture. He was working in the U.S. administration and yet was a spy for Soviet Russia. So my purpose in bringing that up is to point out from uh, some excerpts from the text, which I'm about to read, how this person held up and maintained his presence of mind. He was a model in maintaining his consciousness, his purpose, in face of extraordinary adversity. So the author, who used to hold meetings uh, with Ezra Pound 
at this mental institution on a regular basis to um, discuss uh, literary projects, uh, discuss their various correspondence with different uh, peers and so on. He says as follows, quote, I never heard Ezra make an irrational statement, nor to my knowledge did any of his other visitors. The author then goes on to describe uh, meetings with Ezra Pound, his wife, who was always in attendance every day at the mental institution called St. Elizabeth's. He says, the most striking thing about the Pounds at St. Elizabeth's was that their manner bore no recognizable relationship to their grim surroundings. Ezra Pound, he says, often strode about the grounds of the hospital, much more alert, keen, and vigorous than the shambling, dejected members of the staff. And then the author goes on, he resolutely refused to be overcome by the atmosphere that turned most men into shells and robots within a matter of days. What other modern writer, say for instance the prophet of the swamps, William Faulkner, could continue to produce under the pressures that were forced upon Ezra Pound for 13 years, calling upon the seemingly inexhaustible resources of his character, he carried on his work, his teaching, and his philosophy without being visibly affected. What psychological crutch could Ezra's contemporaries lean upon to sustain themselves in such trials? Many of them became dope addicts, alcoholics, manic depressives, and suicides, even though they won greater fame and the financial rewards that were never his. Let me repeat that one sentence calling upon the seemingly inexhaustible resources of his character, he carried on his work, his teaching, and his philosophy without being visibly affected. I think this relates directly to Neville's advice. He characterizes the central figure of the Gospels as the human imagination. And it brings to my mind the quote when Jesus was at the well with the Samaritan woman. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. In other words, an ever-present consciousness. I believe it is precisely that example that we should aspire to when we're struggling with trying to maintain the essential assumption about our own creative nature. And yet we find that at odd moments we're overcome, we're disillusioned, and we might even seem to lose hope. But with practice, we can emulate the singular confidence and sense of mission that Ezra Pound displayed. So I hope you enjoyed this foray into the world of art and poetry as an inspiration to continue our study of the worldview of Neville Goddard. Thank you for listening. Remember to check the show notes and subscribe to the Neville on Fire podcast. 